Lord is good, amen? Look at the Lord's Word today. The, the, the kids are in with us. Uh, whenever we celebrate communion, we keep the young ones in. And, uh, yeah. yeah. They like that. You hear that? They like that. This is good. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 5. I want to talk about um, the Lord's Supper before we take the Lord's Supper, or what is often called communion. Actually, I want to read several passages. Why don't we start in... Um, where do we want to start? Uh, why don't we start... Where did I say to go to? We'll end up there. Let's start in Matthew. Go to Matthew... Um, we're going to read, I want to read the accounts, the original accounts of uh, what's called the, the Last Supper, which is what we call the First Supper, or Communion. Um, and it's in, it's in all the Gospels. So I think I want to read through all of them. Go to Matthew 26. We'll start there. In Matthew 26, starting in verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each uh, began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now, by the way, I'm reading the New King James Version, so if you have the ESV or the NIV, it's, of course, it's going to read a little bit differently. Uh, verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the for many for the remission of sins. Now look at Luke 22. We have Luke's account of the Last Supper. Verse 14 of chapter 22, Luke said, When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice he says Passover and not communion. Our Lord's Supper. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he take, and then he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is shed for you. One more, okay? Mark 14. Well, actually, two more. <laughs> you don't mind if we read the Bible, do you? Okay. So make sure. We're a Bible church, right? Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Finally going to get there. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is exhorting the body to moral purity. Corinthians had a, a host of problems, doctrinal problems, uh, uh, and they had sin problems, they had moral issues. By the way, whenever you, you hear somebody talking about getting back to the early church and being like the early church, they always have this romantic view like the early church didn't have any problems. Just read the book of Corinthians. All kinds of problems. Okay? All kinds of problems. So if you're looking for the perfect church, guess what? It's never existed. But we do have a perfect Savior. Amen? Amen? Perfect Savior. We are not perfect. He is. And His salvation is. That's what we're going to focus on today. Anyway, they had a sin problem. So here Paul says... Um, He's exhorting them to deal with the problem. And where do we want to begin? He says, let's read verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Now, boasting, they weren't dealing with the problem. They were kind of arrogant about it. Actually, the Corinthian attitude was, by taking a light view of sin, they were being sophisticated. Uh, today, we'd say, being tolerant. And it, it was a point almost of honor that, hey, no big deal. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You don't need a whole lot of sin to mess up your life. You don't need a whole lot of sin to mess up a church. You don't need a whole lot of sin to mess up a culture. Right? Because that little leaven grows. Becomes a big problem over time. He says, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ... Our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, when we read the original accounts of what we call the Last Supper, or the institution of the Lord's Supper, or Communion, we see references in the Gospels to the fact that what they were celebrating was the Passover. That last meal of Jesus that we call communion was in fact a Passover meal. So here now Paul references the, the Passover, the reality of the Passover, in the context of the Christian community and the Christian life. So... <clears throat> We can learn lessons from the Passover that apply to both the Lord Jesus and to us as Christians. So when Paul is writing about the Passover in the early church to his Jewish 
audience, they understood many things about Passover we do not understand. So I want this morning to to go back and look at the institution of the Passover and then see some lessons for us today that Paul probably had in mind here when he exhorted the body to feast with unleavened bread, to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the Lord's Supper in an appropriate manner. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 12 this morning and look at the institution of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Now you all know the background, right? Israel's been in bondage for 400 years. God uh, uh, hears their cry. He calls Moses. He's going to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. On the eve of their deliverance, on the eve of their redemption, God institutes a holy meal. And when you think about it, it's kind of strange. So, the big event's coming. The big deliverance is coming. 400 years, the people of God had been in bondage. For 400 years, they cried for deliverance. For 400 years, God heard, but waited and waited and waited. Uh, he had reasons for waiting. He waited and waited, and finally God is going to deliver Israel out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And what does God say? Let's eat. Let's have a meal. Before I deliver you, let's have a meal. So this tells me this meal is important. This meal is fraught with symbolism and meaning. Because God does nothing for naught. Right? So... Exodus 12, verse 1, And now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire." And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Jehovah. 
Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover was a type of Jesus Christ. A type of Jesus Christ. We're told here that the lamb had to be without blemish. Jesus was morally impeccable. That is, he was free from sin in every respect, in thought, word, and deed. In his earthly life and in his death, he was completely pure and sinless. Amen? Although he identified with sinners and was human, he was not fallen. He was not sinful. The lamb that was offered had to be without spot and blemish uh, here in Exodus. And so the lamb of God, Jesus, had to be completely undefiled and pure before God in order to be an acceptable sacrifice. Secondly, we see here that the lamb was inspected. The lamb was taken on the 10th day, but it was not killed until the 14th day. And in the intervening time between the 10th and the 14th, they were to inspect the lamb to make sure that the lamb indeed was without blemish. Because it might look fine on the outside, but in fact it had a sickness. Or maybe there was something that wasn't uh, very clear immediately, but they had to inspect this lamb and make sure before they offered it to God that it was truly without spot and blemish. So it was taken on the 10th day, but not offered until the 14th. So likewise, Jesus was inspected and he was tested during his life to see if truly he was going to be a spotless offering to God. He was tested, for example, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when you read the Gospels right before the the Passover that Jesus celebrated, right before his death, we see uh, the Pharisees, And the Sadducees and the lawyers, they all came against Jesus. And they all challenged Jesus. And they all tested Jesus. Well, that was part of the inspection of the Lamb. We know that Jesus was also tested by the devil, right? In the wilderness. It says that Jesus went into the wilderness and, and he was there 40 days and 40 nights and he fasted. And while he was hungry, it says, the devil came to him and tested him to see if he would use his divine prerogatives in his own interest. Jesus passed the test. Jesus was tested, likewise, by his sufferings. The things that he endured, uh, having taken human nature upon himself. So in spite of the testing and the temptation, Jesus was yet without sin. Without sin, the Word of God says. Therefore, therefore, He was qualified to be the Passover Lamb, our sacrifice for our sins, because He was without blemish. Because God would not and God will not accept a sinful offering. You see, if Jesus had sinned, even one sin, he would have been disqualified. And he could not have stood in our place. But he was absolutely pure, in not only in his deity, but in his humanity. So therefore, he was qualified 
certified to be an offering for sin. Thirdly, this lamb had to be killed. Here in Exodus 12, it says, um, You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The value of Jesus' sinless life was not simply in his personal example or his moral influence. Jesus died not simply as a prophet, nor as a martyr, nor as a moral example, but Jesus died as a blood sacrifice for sin. This doctrine of the blood atonement of Jesus has been attacked for centuries and is still attacked today, even by some within the church who don't like the idea of the shedding of blood. To them, it is, it is a barbaric idea that God would require the shedding of blood for sin. Yet we are told that we are saved by faith in His blood. Here, look at Romans 3. We'll just look at... But we're going to come back to Exodus. Romans chapter 3. And this is just one of many passages. It says in verse 23, For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now let me pause for a moment, because we're going to come back to this idea of redemption, but I want you to understand that the Passover meal is is, is a meal about redemption. That's its primary Symbolism. It's not primarily forgiveness. It's redemption. It's, it's the idea that Israel is in bondage. They're in slavery. And God intervenes and God delivers them out of that. He buys them out of that, if you will. Then brings them into freedom and liberty. That is called redemption. When you are bought out of slavery and brought into a place of freedom. So, the the Passover is about redemption. So, Paul says that we're justified freely, 324, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. By His blood. Uh, I've already referred to Hebrews, where it says, without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sin. Look at First Peter for a moment. Go to First Peter quickly. And we see here Peter refers to the blood of Jesus. He says here, First Peter 1, he says, um, To get the context, we need to go back to verse 13. First Peter 1. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope. Now, now, We really need to know our Bibles better. And we really need, the old, need to know the Old Testament better. Because when, when the New Testament was written, the New Testament writers were making all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament that we miss because we don't know the Old Testament. Even this phrase where he says, gird up the loins of your mind. When we, remember what we read back in Exodus? When, he, when the Lord said, uh, when you eat the meal, have your loins girded. 
So Peter's got this in mind. Okay? He's got Exodus 12 in mind. Be sober. Gird up your loins. And rest your hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear or reverence. Knowing that you were not redeemed, there's that word redeemed again, a redemption, with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed by what? With the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. You weren't redeemed by the example of Christ. You weren't, were not redeemed by the moral influence of Christ. You were not simply redeemed by the teaching and preaching of Christ. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb. Without blemish. And without spot. Amen. So Peter has here in mind this Passover, this redemption, the fact that the lamb had to be spotless and perfect, and Jesus was indeed the spotless lamb. So we learn much, and we could talk even more about what we can learn about Jesus from the Passover, but we need to move on. The second point to be made is that the Passover had to be appropriated. It had to be appropriated. Go back to Exodus 12. Back in Exodus 12, starting in verse 7, it says, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. The first thing we notice is that the blood must be applied. The blood must be applied. You see, it was not enough for the lamb to be slain. The blood had to be put on the doorpost of the house. So, there had to be a personal appropriation of the blood, if you will. A personal application of the blood to the individual's door, in this case. And so, of course, the lesson here is that it, it's not enough to um, for Christ to have simply died. It's not enough that the, the Passover lamb was slain. The blood of the lamb had to be personally appropriated. It had to be personally applied. Jesus died, the Word of God tells us, for the sins of the world. Guess what? That saves no one. Believing that Jesus died for the world does not save you. The blood of the Passover lamb saved no one. It delivered no one. They had to first appropriate the blood by applying it to themselves. Jesus died, but in order to benefit from his death, we must appropriate his blood by a genuine living faith. When the Israelites appropriated that blood, now, now, now think about this, okay? You know, when we read stuff in Scripture, we 
we read into it all kinds of things that aren't there. We read, we read it as if the people that were first experiencing it know all that we know. The fact of the matter is, God institutes this ritual, the sacrifice of the Passover, and he says, okay, I want you to kill the lamb, then I want you to take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost. Now that's just kind of weird. Now think about it. I mean, did, I mean, doesn't God know their heart? Why would God, I mean, why the blood have to be put on there? Did, I mean, when the angel of death came to kill the firstborn of Egypt, couldn't God see Look, God couldn't see through the door. God couldn't see through the roof. Are there believers in there? I don't know. <laughs> well, of course. So God says, but God says, put the blood. Not, And he says, put the blood on the outside of the door so I can see it, or so my angel can see it, as if God doesn't know. I mean, if I was an Israelite, I'd think this is a little odd. Okay, this is a little odd, because God knows, right? What was the point of the ritual? The point is that the individual had to demonstrate their faith. They had to demonstrate their faith by applying it to the door. We evangelicals are so into heart religion that we think it's okay that there's no evidence of our faith in how we live. And that is completely unbiblical. What did James say? Faith without works is what? Dead. It's useless. If we have a living faith, that faith will be demonstrated in how we live our lives. One of the reasons the Lord instituted not only the Passover, but the Lord's Supper, the the communion that we, we take, is that He wants us to demonstrate and to do so publicly the reality of our faith. And so, the blood had to be applied. Putting blood on a door doesn't save anybody. Right? But it's what the blood represented, and it's what the act represented. And the blood represented the the atoning of sin, and the application represented faith. A living, genuine faith in that blood. The blood is of no avail to those who did not apply it. To, to kill the lamb... But not to apply the blood was not what God required because God requires a genuine living faith. Amen? And we see this even further impressed upon us by the fact that not only did the blood have to be applied, the flesh had to be eaten. Notice this back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So not only was there an application of the blood to the door, but God said, that's not enough either. After you apply the blood to the door, then I want you to actually sit down and I want you to eat some of this lamb. This eating of the flesh emphasizes the personal and internal nature 
of true saving faith. They had to take the, the lamb into themselves, if you will. In other words, a mere intellectual faith is not enough for salvation. It's not enough to only apply the blood to the outside of the house. You can have an outside religion. You can have an outside Christianity. You can have an outside faith where there is no internal reality. Is anybody hearing me? So it's not enough simply to apply it to the door. God says, I want you to take the meat and I want you to eat it. I want you to bring it into your body. That is to say that your faith must be a genuine internal faith. It has to be real to you on the inside. So we, Christians, must take Jesus and not merely apply the blood to an outward profession, not simply go through the ritual of taking the elements, but rather we must feed on Jesus Christ as the Lamb. We must feed on Him eternal, internally. It must be a living, genuine faith which issues in a vital relationship. It sounds like an oxymoron. If you don't know what that word is, look it up. It sounds like an oxymoron. But the reality is, there are Christians that don't know Jesus. And what I mean by this is they make a profession of faith. They might even be good churchgoers. They might even tithe. I don't know. But they don't know Jesus. They know about Him. They profess things about Him. They acknowledge things about Him. They've applied the blood on the outside, but they haven't eaten the lamb. They haven't taken the flesh inside. There's no living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't know Him. Jesus said in John chapter 6, He said, I am the bread of life. Right? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. The Pharisees heard it and they're like, wow, this guy's really weird. You know, he's talking about cannibalism, right? Well, of course he wasn't. He's talking about living faith. He's saying, you have to learn to feed on me because I am your life. When we think of God giving us eternal life, most of us are thinking God gives us heaven later. No, give it, getting eternal life means God gives you Jesus now. He's eternal life. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the life. And it's by knowing Jesus that we experience uh, eternal life because He is eternal life. And so our faith must be a living faith and an internal faith in which we feed on the Lamb. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating Christ as our Passover. We're celebrating the, the efficacy, the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus But we have to do it with a genuine living faith in His blood and in His broken body. And just as the atonement does not benefit those who do not believe, so the Lord's Supper does not benefit those who partake of it in unbelief. Third point. By the way, I was going to preach just a little bit, but my daughter said, you've got to preach longer, Dad. So we'll see. Third point. First point was Jesus is 
the Passover is a type of Jesus. The second point, what's the second point? Remember? I remember. Appropriation. Third point, the Passover must be observed properly. Now, go back to Exodus for a moment. 12. Back in verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, or boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, with its head, with its legs, and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the Lord specified certain things about the meal, and He specified certain things about the persons who partake of the meal. And um, we could literally spend weeks and weeks pulling good things out of the, the symbolism here. But for now, He says this meal is to be uh, cooked with fire. And fire in Scripture, as you know, represents what? It represents judgment. Okay? And so this, this redemption that God was providing for them was a, a meal recognizing and celebrating judgment. It was to be done with unleavened bread, which symbolizes purity and holiness. And it was to be eaten with bitter herbs, which speaks of repentance. Repentance. So when they took the meal, they were to understand that God was judging the land and that in order for them to escape judgment, they had to apply the blood. Uh, they were to take of this, this um, meal in holiness because God was separating them out of Egypt to be a separate and unique people. But they're, they're, they were to acknowledge their sin. They were to repent they were to eat the bitter herbs of repentance. Those who partook of this meal, it says in verse 11, were to do it with their, their loins girded, with shoes on their feet, and with a staff in their hand. This is like fast food. <laughs> You're driving through. This is a quick meal. The, the, the idea here is, Urgency. Get ready to go. Get ready to go. Right? And all of this, the, the, the girded loins, the shoes on the feet, the staff in the hand, the, the eating it in haste, all of this speaks of separation from bondage, sin, and the world. God is saying, I'm getting ready to deliver you. Get ready to be delivered. Get ready to go. I'm ready. It's coming tonight. The, the angel's coming tonight. He's going to kill the firstborn tonight. Tonight is the night. Get ready. Let's go. Right? And this, this speaks of uh, preparation and eagerness and readiness for departure from Egypt. And although they were still in Egypt at the time... 
right? They were in the process of being delivered from Egypt and the bitterness of slavery. So the fundamental message, if you will, of, of the Passover was to, to acknowledge and separate, I mean, acknowledge and to, to focus on redemption. Redemption or deliverance. Deliverance. So when we think of the Lord's Supper as a Passover meal, we, we need to remember that we are celebrating redemption from judgment, redemption from sin, and redemption from slavery. No amens? Although we are in the world at the moment, physically, we are to, to be not of the world, right? We're in it, but not of it. In order to partake of, of the Lord's Supper in an appropriate manner, you must not only have faith in the blood and receive Christ internally as our bread, we must also live as pilgrims in this world. This is what the, 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 the typology of the clothing and the staff is. We are pilgrims in the world. We are, we are in the process of being delivered out of the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. Why are, how are we not of it if we're in it? Because we are not like it morally. Amen. We're in it, but we're not like it. We do not live according to its dictates. We do not live according to its values. We are different. We're different. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, which we read earlier, exhorting the Corinthians... He says, put away the old leaven. In other words, the, the leaven, of course, is a symbolism of sin. So he's, Paul is saying, put away sin. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating redemption. Redemption from what? Redemption from sin. Not just redemption from punishment. Because punishment, the logic of punishment is the logic of sin. God only, God, I mean, God's punishment is the result of sin. If you're delivered from sin, guess what? You're delivered from punishment, right? So as we, as we take the Lord's Supper as our Passover, we are remembering, remember Jesus said do this in remembrance of, of me. We are remembering the great redemption that Jesus Christ provided through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When God called Egypt, excuse me, when God called Israel out of Egypt, he did not call them out of Egypt partly. God did not call some of the tribes out of Egypt and leave some of the tribes in Egypt. Did he? When God called his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, he called them out completely. When God called his people out of bondage, God called them into the promised land. You think, wait a minute, didn't they end up in the wilderness? (laughs) Indeed they did. The wilderness was not where God called them. God called them to the promised land. The wilderness was simply a pathway to where God had called them. 
They ended up in the wilderness. Why? Sin. Mainly the sin of unbelief. You see, here was the problem with Israel. That although God had taken Israel out of Egypt, Israel didn't take Egypt out of their heart. They were physically delivered. They were redeemed by great and wondrous acts of God. As we saw with the, with the parting of the Red Sea, God demonstrated His mighty power, not only with the, with the avenging angel that came and killed the firstborn, but through His act of dividing the Red Sea and destroying their enemies. And they get on the other side of, of the Red Sea and, and Miriam, and, and they're all singing and celebrating. And then the next thing you know, what are they doing? They're complaining and they're griping and they're whining. And they wanted to go back Egypt. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to bondage. Wow. Because they were still slaves in their mind. They were still slaves in their heart. God had redeemed them. God had brought them out of bondage, but they were still bound up all in their mind and heart. They didn't know how to live free. They'd so you've been so used to being slaves. The redemption that God wrought for Israel was a complete redemption. God brought them out of bondage to bring them into the land of promise, which was a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. When God saves, God saves completely. When God redeems, God redeems completely. It was not the will of God that any of His people die in the wilderness, but they, because of their unbelief, would not go into the land. They would not go into the promised land. They chose the wilderness. They chose to stay slaves. Even though the redemption had been wrought... Even though the redemption was complete, even though the redemption had been demonstrated by mighty wonders and acts of God, they chose to stay slaves. The redemption that we have in Jesus Christ is a complete redemption. The redemption that we have in Jesus Christ is not only the redemption of our past sins. It's not only that we are free from guilt, but thank God we are. Amen? It is also redemption here and now. Here and now, Jesus Christ has provided a redemption for His people that they can live free from sin. In this life... In this day, in this age, we can live as the free men of the Lord and not as slaves of sin. Here and now. There is no reason for Christians to be defeated. There's no reason for Christians to live their lives depressed. There's no reason for Christian marriages to fail. There's no reason for Christian children to deny the faith. There's no reason for all of the evil and wickedness we see in the professing church today because the redemption of Jesus is full and complete. 
Jesus Christ did not save you out of Egypt to leave you in the wilderness. Jesus Christ called you out of the wilderness to bring you into the promised land of the abundant life. Jesus Christ has provided for you, if you believe in Him, every one of you, every one of you, He has given you through His Word and through His Spirit, Jesus has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. Jesus has given you through His Word and His Spirit the power to walk in victory. Jesus has given you through His Word and Spirit the power to conquer the world. What is our victory over the world, says John? Our faith in the Son of God. We have a real Savior. We have a real Passover. We have a real redemption. So it is time for God's people to get the heck out of Egypt. And get into the promised land. Because it has been purchased for you. It has been bought for you. Jesus paid for the abundant life. He has paid for the eternal life. He's paid for the Holy Spirit. He's paid for your victory. And He's given it to you. And what are you doing? Eating the onions and the garlics and the leeks when He's called you into the promised land to drink the milk and the honey. Amen? I'm so tired... Of Jesus being dishonored by His people. Because when His people fail, it means that Jesus failed. And Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus is not a failure. His death was sufficient. His redemption is sufficient. His Holy Spirit is sufficient. Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior for you, no matter what you are facing. He is enough. Go to Colossians and we're going to close. The Colossians had problems too. Okay? They had the opposite problem of the Corinthians. The Corinthians were libertines. We have a lot of those in the church today. Oh, it doesn't care if you're sleeping around. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You know, that whole gang. Well, the Colossians were the opposite problem. They were punctilious and religious. They were into rituals. But it was all external stuff. And so Paul has to deal with that problem. And he says, um, we're just going to read a couple of scriptures. Let's read uh, Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. This is Jesus. And He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence, that in all things he may be first, that in all things he may be acknowledged, that in all things he may be praised. 
Your version might read, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. But it probably literally is better to read, And all the fullness was pleased to dwell in Him. The fullness, the entire fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Jesus when He was on earth. By Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on heaven, excuse me, things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He is reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You gotta appropriate the blood. You gotta eat, the, you gotta eat the lamb. Paul says, verse, chapter two, verse four, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh and I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Look at verse 9. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you, you, you are complete, complete, Complete in Him. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been provided by and in Jesus Christ. He's all we need. Amen? Let's stand together. Bow our heads and pray as we take the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine aren't magical. What is required is a living faith. A living faith in the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, if you've applied the blood, if you've eaten the Lamb, then come and take the bread and the wine. In remembrance of your redemption, in remembrance that you have been set free, and then as you go forth today, live as the Lord's free man. Jesus, I don't have words. I don't have words. To thank you. Your redemption, your salvation, your sacrifice is so complete. Help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, understand and apply to truly feed on you. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.